0: This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure to talk with Michelle Murphy about her new book, The Economization of Life, which was just published by Duke University Press. Michelle Murphy is professor in the History Department and Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. She's director of the Technoscience Research Unit and co-organizer with Natasha Myers of the Toronto Technoscience Salon. She published two previous books, the first of which, Sick Building Syndrome, won the Ludwig Fleck Prize from 4S. Her second book, Seizing the Means of Reproduction, mapped histories of feminism, American empire, population control, and neoliberalism. In my view, Michelle is such an exciting scholar because her work gives some of the best examples of feminist, anti-colonial, empirically driven studies of technoscience, and all with high theoretical stakes. Her new book, The Economization of Life, moves from the U.S. to Bangladesh, from the early 20th century into the future. And in it, she teaches readers how to pair historical archival research with the critical mode of science fiction. In all of her work, one key word to my mind is infrastructure. And in her current book, the concept she really wants to overhaul is population. So what is the economization of life? As Murphy defines it, it's a regime of valuation which took hold in the middle of the 20th century and in the decolonial moment after World War II, which is paradoxical because this post war regime of valuation repurposed earlier racist logics and called for interventions into population management by putting what had been the evolutionary timeline of eugenics into an economic timeline that nonetheless retained a similar progressivist racist logic. This particular regime linked the value of life, the financial investment and moral value of lives, to their relative contribution to an economy under global capitalism. And this particular regime evaluation need not have been so, but it came to organize and Michelle Murphy uh, argues it continues to organize late modern programs undertaken in the name of development. I did this interview with student collaborators in my seminar, The History of Global Health, and if you'd like to learn more about integrating the New Books Network into your pedagogical, pedagogical practice, send me an email and I'll send you an article I wrote about it. My student collaborators in this interview were Aditi Nayat, Tulia Wabunia, Elizabeth Leder, and Vivian Wanjoey. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. So this is Laura Stark, um, along with students in the History of Global Health course at Vanderbilt University, and we're really excited to be talking with Michelle Murphy, who is the author of a wonderful new book from Duke called The Economization of Life. So, Michelle, I wonder if you can start off by either inventing or talking us through some of the connections that really seem to link the work that you've been doing over the past several years on production and reproduction on structure and infrastructure, um, and thinking through the relationships between um, things like chemical exposures and climate change, where you get to at, um, at the end of the book, and um, sex and reproduction, because these are often things that are held so um, so far apart. And one of the things we really appreciated about the book is that it brings together um, th- some seemingly broad things with some seemingly intimate things and showing how they're actually um, uh, knitted together. Okay, great. Well, um, this book in
1: part was an attempt to answer some questions that emerged out of previous research on the history of technologies in uh, uh, transnational feminist uh, reproductive health practices. So in that older work, I looked at things like manual suction abortion or um, forms of like vaginal exam, gynecological exams, um, things like that that are kind of conventional, we could say reproductive health health practices. Um, But in doing that work, I began to really think about the ways that we can push on reproduction and ask the question, you know, where does reproduction end and begin? Uh, Is it really just something that happens in the body? If we go into the archive, we can find that reproduction as a word is only really used to describe things like fertility and uh, childbirth and sex and abortion, things like that in the 1980s. Before that, reproduction was was used to describe things that happened in relationship, such as the reproduction of a whole species in biology, or we can think about in economics, the reproduction of capital. And so I wanted to think about what does it mean to tell a history of a distributed form of reproduction, and what would a this theory of distributed reproduction, a understanding of reproduction as extending far beyond the body, extending out into all sorts of infrastructure of life support, as well as infrastructures that are invested in having some kinds of life not continue into the future, and other kinds of life continue. So that reproduction itself is not an innocent thing. Not all forms of continuance into the future are good, but rather it's a political question what life supports and infrastructures um, get to continue, like our investment into militarism versus education um, would be an obvious example. And so in a conversation of life, I really really wanted to think about this kind of distributed reproduction. And in um, the history of the, since the late 20th century or over the course of the 20th century, one of the main forms that was kind of crystallized uh, for Uh, social scientists in the history of social science was through the figure of population. Population is a kind of aggregate form of life um, that needed to be managed for the sake of things not like an individual's well-being, um, but for the sake of things like the nation, uh, economy, and um, racial futures. And so that was kind of how my old work connected to this project on the economization of life, and how it connects the chemicals and climate change, is that um, you know in this book I really trace population as it emerges in the um, um, the nineteen teens as a new kind of experimental object to be managed for the sake of uh, economy, national economy. Okay. Um, all the way through to the contemporary period, where we see population reemerging as a way to fix climate change, and so I hope my book, which shows all of the kind of violence that has been done um, under the um, in the name of governing population um, for the sake of economy, that that is a dissuasion to all readers. Um, from reactivating population as a, a, a way to think about the problem of climate change
0: because it just reactivates histories of racial violence. Absolutely. One of the things that was really useful for us to think about um, methodologically and theoretically about the book was how you're doing sort of a, a material semiotic analysis um, at the same time. A material semiotic. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So words and words and uh, yeah. and infrastructures. Yeah, words and things. Yeah, exactly. So I really liked your phrasing of population as an intolerable concept. I mean, the the coda, I just would want yeah. to flag to listeners, is very um, uh, forthright and also actually gives alternative, uh, uh, not alternative, uh, other worlds and other words. And so your sort of other word of uh, distributed reproduction uh, is a really helpful way of thinking about what population as a term and as a project is accomplishing. So it becomes um, in the 20th century, very technical. It focuses in on um, its individualizing. And in your um, in the book, I especially liked your phrasing of um, distributed reproduction is the extensive sense of existing over time that stretches beyond bodies to include the uneven relations and infrastructures that shape what forms of life are supported to persist, thrive, and alter, and what forms of life are destroyed, injured, and constrained. And so linking this to um, sort of the launching point of the book, in thinking about the phrase economization of life, that that this economization of life is one mode of, one regime of valuation um, for thinking about this. we, the book is organized into three arcs, and we were hoping we could walk with you through each of the of the arcs and ask a set of questions as we go along. Great. In uh, in chapter one, where you're thinking about the invention of the economy, and particularly as thinking about the economy as becoming the environment in which a population is supposed is thought to is imagined to be existing as opposed to something more, um, in, in a, in a different ecological frame would be things like food production and, and, and things. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the history among other things of the GNP and the GDP and the the physical and infrastructural elements that go into being able to calculate that and the thick data Mm -hmm. that it requires. And I wanted to, um, pass this on to Aditi to to, to jump in with some questions.
2: Yes, so in chapter one, you primarily discuss how the GDP and economy are phantasmograms. And you use this Mm -hmm. term to signify how they're simultaneously quantifying while also adding effect and imagination. So how was the economy as a phantasmogram Uniquely relevant to thinking about family planning.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, well, one of the kind of starting points of that the argument for connecting up population to economy is, is that uh, beginning in the early twentieth century, there was a shift that we can begin to see from making arguments about. Uh, of scientists making arguments about uh, biological racial futures. And as that increasingly became condemned as a form of uh, pernicious and deadly racism, they turned to making arguments about um, economic futures. And rather than talking about racial difference, they increasingly began to use quantification to talk about the ways different forms of life unevenly contribute to Economic economic futures, and here at this period in the 1930s, we see for the first time the um, the emergence in economics of the field of macroeconomics, the Keynesian economics, where um, using econometrics, new kinds of measures, a sense of a national uh, economy is being brought into our uh, sensibilities and imagination so that we can begin to uh, say things like, you know, when employment uh, goes um, or when inflation goes up, employment goes down. And we kind of make these correlations between things like, you know, consumer prices and employment rates or between uh, participation of of women in the workforce and um, productivity. And so these kinds of correlations are all being uh, made but generated out of new Ways of counting production and making macroeconomic models, but what I want to argue is that when we look at those models that economists use to um, to bring into our sensibility uh, a kind of vision that we're surrounded by a macroeconomy, that we're suspended, surrounded by a set of kind of interconnected and correlated economic forces. Um, when we actually look at that economic work, most of it was based on mathematical, abstract mathematical, mathematical models with no actually empirical data. Or when they did do empirical data, let's say for GDP, um, we can look at the practices of sample surveying. We can look at even the ways that economists talk about the fuzziness of numbers. We can look at the way GDP only calc- is calculated out of um, things that are bought and sold in ex- up the world, like the labor of women, like the labor of growing food, like the labor of um, caring for one another, um, all these kinds of what we call reproductive labor now or care labor um that GDP excludes all of that as well when it comes to things like wars or hurricanes, you know there's no debit to GDP so all the bullets and the selling of bullets count for GDP. All the uh, the um, equipment and emergency response to a disaster counts towards GDP, and there is no debit. And so, GDP is a very warped kind of number. Um, it's a number that is um, powerful, not because it's accurate. Um, or because it's um, really kind of precisely captures uh, economic productivity or people's productivity but it's uh, powerful because it has um, it's imbued with a kind of effective sense of the future and of, of uh, being attached to the nation and so I use the word phantasmogram to talk about the ways that numbers work in the world not because they're well calculated, but because they're imbued with imaginaries, with feelings, with fears, with hopes. And so when we think about the work of someone like um, the, the historian uh, Ted Porter, who's done such important work showing us how objectivity relies on this kind of trusted numbers, We can, I think, begin to take up his his provocation and think even harder about, like, how does affect circulate? How does fear, hate, love, hope circulate to animate some numbers and give them a force in the world and um, not others? And so population and economy are two important kind of quantified objects that are filled with fears and hopes and nationalisms and sexisms and racisms, that really give them their potency um, beyond any kind of calculative value. So that's why I kind of say I think it's so important to understand economy as a phantasmogram. We're taught from a very young age to believe that we're surrounded by this thing called economy. It is the horizon of our existence we we are trained to like believe in its existence even though we can't see it and we don't know how to calculate it and we get these numbers reported in the newspaper and the news um but i think we can kind of look at its production and and be able to kind of crack economy and ask questions of it that pierce its kind of phantasmic potency and see that we can smash this container of economy and actually imagine new horizons for our communities about what it is that actually surrounds us and matters for us. So that's why
0: I think Frances McGrath is such an important um, way of thinking. It's such a helpful way to um, rethink what's been missing in things. I mean, just as you pointed out with the history of statistics and um the his- telling the, the story of the economy as a history of institutions and organizations as well. It's really um it's really compelling. Um and in the in the book you phrase it as reproduction became affectively charged and was key became key to governing the economy. And uh, in arc one used to so nicely show that it didn't necessarily need to be there, uh, be that way. And part of the project in shifting the time from evolutionary time to economic time was a way of c- um, continuing a racist project under a new name in a, a post-war decolonial, uh, seemingly decolonial moment. So the, the racist element of it um, is really palpable um, and, and persuasive. One of the um, things that's especially um, helpful, I think, as an overall project in the book is that it is imaginative. So you're encouraging, we felt encouraged as readers to imagine um, the other world and the other words along with you. Um, One of the things that we were hoping that you could imagine, uh, help us uh, think through, is Sultana's dream. And so one of the cases that you pull up in Mm -hmm. chapter four. And Vivian wanted to ask about this. Okay, great.
2: Okay, uh, so you introduced the story of Sultana's dream in Chapter 4, and we were just wondering what was this specific story trying to help us understand?
1: Well, there's a couple things. One is, um, you know, just to also go back to what uh, Laura was just saying, like an important argument of the book is that uh, racism, the kind of racist project of eugenics, which was about sorting between life that should live, life not worth living, life uh, that's worth investing in, life not worth being born, these kinds of logics become absolutely acceptable if they're put in quantitative economic form um, in the second half of the 20th century and still today. And so there's a pernicious form of racism that does not speak itself as race, but speaks itself in relation relationship to valuing some lives as not um, as being a negative such a negative effect to the economy that it's better that they not exist or they're not worth saving, providing health care for, and so on. So this is an an important argument. And in that history of, of understanding how economy and population worked together to make these calculations, the actual people who um, are affected by the infrastructure calculations are um, you know poor brown and black people who uh, live uh, under the shadow of American Empire around the world and as well as in inside of the United states and so in the book, I mostly concentrate on u s and Bangladesh relations um, and look at the traffic of social science and expertise um, in the kind of co development of population economy as it touches down in Bangladesh as the place where I do. Kind of the most careful um, work about kind of on-ground example of the playing out of population control, and it's so important, I think, to provide alternative ways to understand that the kind of effective force of all this number was constantly being combated, and that we can see that you know women in Bangladesh um, have been. Uh, living otherwise, resisting, have other feminisms, um, and are not kind of captured by uh, these calculative infrastructures. So Sultana's dream is so important because, um, you know, it's the first uh, known published feminist sci-fi story. It gives us a dream vision of another kind of science, a science governed by feminist principles, a science... um, led by uh, Muslim South Asian feminist women of the early 20th century who try to use science to build, build a world in, in relationship to particularly plants and atmospheres, uh, to build a science towards life support rather than a science towards war machines and economy. And so this vision um, in this like, first known Feminist sci-fi um, writing is, uh, I think, really important for understanding that the dreamscape of what science can be or what our horizon is is like one of our battlefields, if you will. It's one of our places of struggle. We're not—we're on the one hand, we can be struggling in our day-to-day lives, or working in a lab, or as a kind of um, someone who is being um, oppressed or affected by these. Inf- structures, but we're also doing the struggle in our dreams, in our imaginaries, in our future makings. And so uh, that was why Sultana's dream is so important.
0: You got, you got Oz and head nodding on this end. That was really, uh, really wonderful. Oh, and, good. Yeah. And for, um, for <laughs> folks who are coming out of the social sciences in particular, having science fiction and understanding science fiction as a mode of theorizing perhaps, or, um, a, a, a mode, a form of reading and thinking that uh, is illuminating for understanding history, sociology, anthropology, um, everyday life, uh, it's really useful to see as you put it to work in the book. So as you had mentioned, mm-hmm. the, the book um, tells a story of um, the people who are seen as population experts in primarily in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and it's, uh, many of the experti- forms of expertise are coming out of the United States. Um, but a lot of the book is also looking at Bangladesh. And here, Aditi wanted to follow up with a question.
2: Yeah, so in Chapter 5, you state that by partition, South Asia specifically had the densest concentration of regional family planning surveys, but other countries in the Global South around this time also had rapidly rising populations. So why do you think the U.S. and other countries specifically feared the population growth in South Asia and targeted South Asia for their surveys?
1: Mm-hmm. that's a really great question, so it's absolutely true that there's many sites that were developing family planning programs in this period uh in this early period. so we can look at american and here I'm particularly looking at american sponsored projects in um countries that we could call decolonized but who are being kind of rearranged in a new kind of imperial relations. So here we can think in the in the um, places like Puerto Rico was an important early site, Jamaica, Taiwan was another really important site, um, as well as uh, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. And so it wasn't just South Asia. But South Asia was particularly important, I think, because early on, um, the uh, South Asian state um, uh, under Nehru agreed with family planning as a way to govern economy. You know, India, along with the United States and the UK, was the the first three countries really to develop a measure of GDP and to put in place statistical national uh, infrastructures of counting bodies and productivity. So lots of places in the world did not build those uh, infrastructure so quickly, or even still today don't have them. GDP might be calculated by um, the International Monetary Fund, rather than being done nationally, if you're a small country um, with, with a kind of fragile state infrastructure. And so India was one of those countries, along with, c- simultaneous to the U.S. and the U.K., that developed these infrastructure, and the people who ran the statistical office as well as Mahalanobis, nobis who who ran the economic planning um, all those folks were trained in a circuit of, of kind of british u s um, education that went between places like Cambridge and Harvard, where they were trained in the kind of what the statistical practices that emerged out of eugenics. And so there's a, a kind of transnational web of relation and connection in uh, the way of thinking about how you would govern a, quote, modern nation state that uh, India was a part of in a way that, um, that some other places like um, Jamaica wasn't in the same kind of circuit. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why. I mean, another reason is because uh, there was a lot of, you could say racism, slash, casteism, uh, slash, classism in uh, South Asia, and so the population control wasn't uh, and family planning wasn't directed at just anyone. It's directed at um, poor people. It's directed at people who are displaced from land because of forms of modernization of agriculture or land change relations and. Pro- and- and bringing in new forms of private property into land so population control and family planning was appealing to a particular kind of class of experts who wanted to control or regulate um, a kind of what was understood as a worrisome and racialized um, uh, um, population of poor people and so This also kind of fit in with India's own history of eugenics thinking, its own histories of racism and casteism. And so it's kind of a perfect storm to make um, South Asia uh, one of the places that had the most kind of bureaucratic exuberance for making number about uh, the economization of life early on.
0: One of the cases you look at um, really closely in a very helpful way um, is the Invest in a Girl program. And this um, really uh, pulls out the issue of how when population becomes connected to economy, as you show in, in the book, um, economy then becomes a site of intervention and a site of governance because it's speculative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's linking through time in interesting ways that um, that, that, re, that perpetuate the, the racial projects as well. So in writing about um, the girling of the economy, we wanted to um, have you uh, think through with us, if you would, the Invest in a Girl mm-hmm. campaign that you wrote about. And so Elizabeth wanted to follow up on this. Your research suggests that the
2: economization of life leads to family planning initiatives aimed at creating fewer of the third world girl and averting those births. How might your case relate to poor girls of different races that reside in Western countries, such as the U S where black girls are often seen as a problem as opposed to an
1: investment. Thank you so much for that question. That's such an important question. So Invest in a Girl campaigns were really um, you know, took this deep uh, and thick archive of um, making number and measurement about uh, girls' and women's fertility uh, in places like Bangladesh, um, and particularly I talk about, about the region of Matlab, which was densely studied um, for um, since the 1960s for some fortified generations of people. Um, in a community of about a quarter million. So the the incredible thick number that was generated out of that work um, and the kind of correlations then made uh, between things like um, fertility and schooling or early marriage, could, we're kind of drawing out of this thick archive, became the kind of raw material out of which the Invest in a Girl um, framework emerged. So Invest in a Girl framework argues that um, You know, investing in poor girls in, quote, developing countries is the best investment for getting rates of return on GDP because investing in their early education, so we're thinking education to grade 7, reduces their fertility, so we get that bump to GDP from reduced fertility, as well as increases their future labor value, right? So they're able to um, uh, work for... GDP, and so this double bump in GDP um, in the 1990s was identified by uh, Lawrence Summers, who was then chief economist at the World Bank. Um, and uh, the girl, the you know the poor brown girl, was declared the best investment in the developing world. Then we had Nike joining this with the Invest in a Girl campaign. All sorts of companies. Um, and, and philanthropic or philanthropic capitalist organizations that then um, kind of jumped on this ba- bandwagon of, of, you know, talking about investing in a girl providing the greatest rate of return for the global economy. And here we can look at the way that these companies were connected to things like export processing zones. Like we can look at Nike. Where is it ma- being manufactured? And export processing zones that primarily hire young women so this way of thinking was also a way of kind of curating your labor force for these multinational corporations um, so invest in the girl campaigns well they were um, developed in places like Bangladesh Bangladesh in the nineteen seventies invested uh, developed both things like investment in girl campaigns but also microcredit um, as well as all sorts of neoliberal NGO practices And these practices then became global in circulation. And so now in the United States, we actually do have, for example, Bangladesh-based Grameen Bank microcredit projects landing in Brooklyn, Toronto, Philadelphia. And so it is already the case that um, invest-in-the-girl kind of logics um, and microcredit logics um, are being brought North America, particularly directed at um, uh, black girls, Latinx girls, brown girls, poor girls, um, who are seen as um, uh, a kind of potential uh, um, for economic productivity. And one of the kind of sides to this is the way that Invest in a Girl allows girls to be Valued as places for social investment, while uh, kind of putting aside boys as less worthy of investment and uh, giving less um, uh, giving uh, rates of return that are lower, and so boys get um, become a kind of uninvestable life and girls become uh investable life and i think we can see this in the united states and in canada in the ways that we can see programs that are about quote empowering girls and so on um you know next to um you know vilification of um, boys as unruly and we can see the racialization of this um boys are dangerous or the potential date danger Girls are potentially docile labor and investable. And so this does land in the United States. And we can also say that with the whole history of family planning. I focused on Bangladesh, but at the simultaneous time, we had all those kinds of same programs happening um, in Black communities and Latino communities during the same period in the United States. So it's part of a kind of transnational geography of unevenness. It's not just America and Bangladesh. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yes, thank you.
0: Yeah, that's great. And the economization of life um, is so useful to think with in part because you mark it out as one, uh, only one regime of valuation, and Mm -hmm. specifically that it's composed of techniques for governing life for for the sake of fostering the economy and in doing so, reassembling sexed, lived, living being at the nation-state scale of population. So that's that's taking um, uh, using your words from the book. You show that um, it individualizes. It's um, implicitly, if not explicitly, and fundamentally a racist um, uh, phrasing. And that population. Whenever we see the word population, uh, our, our um, are are we we have a little red flag in the air now, and it's really really useful. Yes. Um, so I want to take us back to the to the quota for the book and think about um, the infrastructures that are underwriting population um, thinking through distributed reproduction and the affective habits that it um, it requires or that we might we might uh, we might think through with this. So. Thinking about um, the other words and the other world, we are actually just curious to know uh, and ask that very unfair question of now that mm-hmm. the book is out, what sorts of questions and puzzles seems to be really holding your gaze and thinking about infrastructure, capitalism, um, racism, and imagining uh, other words?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's um, two things. One, I feel like Um, challenge of of, um, getting more people to think critically about population and to understand that it's not a neutral word but instead activates a still present infrastructure of racism that uh, exists transnationally and nationally that whenever we kind of activate that word we are also kind of risking reactivating this infrastructure that is about um deciding who can live and who can die and so you know one project is a project um with a group of feminist science studies people debating population and you know is this a term that we can continue using can we have other terms so here um you know thinkers like adele clark who been a long-time thinker about reproduction and reproductive politics. Um, Donna Haraway, who wants us to think about making kin but is tempted by population. Uh, Kim TallBear, who wants us to understand um, uh, settler sexuality and how um, there are indigenous ways to uh, confront and challenge uh, the normativities of uh, settler sexualities that are built in and prop up ideas of population. uh, Ruha Benjamin thinking about um, how Black Lives Matter makes us um, have, uh, have to um, really attend to the ongoing um, infrastructures that uh, really expose um, people to uh, um, greater death on a regular basis, um, and that these infrastructures are very alive and well. So that is one part of the project: is have that conversation and. Um, and what does it mean for reproductive um, politics in feminist sciences so that's one bit of work and then the other bit of work is okay so if we don't have population and we want to try to think about a distributed form of reproduction that goes far beyond bodies and into infrastructure what does that mean for our categories of life what does that mean for ideas like species or organism or the idea of the normal and the abnormal so in part of my work, I'm also trying to think about something I'm calling alter life, the condition of um, being altered by histories of violence, but also be, being opened to becoming otherwise and into the future. And so in this work, I'm particularly looking at um, the history of uh, chemical violence and chemical exposure and how can we think about that as a kind of problem of distributed reproduction and can we offer to the sciences, to the world, the politics, political mobilizing, other kinds of frameworks, other kinds of concepts, other kinds of imaginaries that really um, honor life and the relations of life support that we all need to be making for each other rather than keep activating these old Cold War and colonial concepts um, and all their baggage.
0: So that's kind of where I'm going with this work. Thank you. Um, well, we um, are really, really grateful for your time and um, really look forward to seeing more of your work, and especially at the end of our semester, having a project that's thinking um, in a time frame Or or a form of thinking that's encouraging us outside of our habits of thinking in terms of uh, conventional timeframes that are handed to us like a semester and the ideas that we really want to have stick with us going forward. Um, Thanks so much, Michelle.